Hey, thank you for checking out our sermons online at Coastal Community Church. We're so glad that uh, you're using these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth. But one of the things we're really passionate about at Coastal is that you have a local church. And so while we encourage you to, to make use of these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth, if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to find a Bible-believing uh, church in your community. If you live in our community, we'd love for you to visit with us. So uh, we uh, are in Yorktown, Virginia. We meet on 101 Village Avenue, and we would love for you to come and check us out. We have three service times, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 and uh, on Sunday morning. And so if you live in the Virginia area and the Yorktown area on the peninsula, we would love for you to come and check us out. We're going to be starting a new sermon series um, here in the in the late winter uh, called Beginnings, and we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and that's going to be covering creation to Noah. And, uh, you know, this is an important series for us as we uh, at Coastal like to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's important is kind of like when you're at the mall and you're trying to find a store and you, and you look at the map on the mall, and if you don't know where you are, where your beginning place is, which usually on a map is marked with a big red X that says you are here. If you don't know your starting point, then you don't know where you're going. And so we think the beginning book of the Bible, Genesis, is very important for us to understand how and why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hope you'll investigate for the next eight weeks uh, this series that we're doing together called Beginnings. I love the clarity of the, the gospel and its implications for our lives in that hymn written by Horatio Spafford under an immense amount of grief when he heard the news of the loss of his children when he wrote that song. The confidence that you have to have in the gospel, the confidence you have to have in God to be able to pin something like that under that much grief is um, encouraging to me every time that I sing it. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We've been going through a series called Beginnings over the past several weeks, and our aim has been to preach through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And over the next uh, few years, uh, Lord willing, if he tarries, um, we're going to pick this series back up in our spring, our winter, spring uh, seasons and uh, continue to go through the book of Genesis. But we're going to conclude it for this year by looking at the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, if you can't afford to purchase one yourself, uh, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. We want you to read it and understand it and be changed by it. And so Genesis chapter 11, it picks up with this familiar um, historical account of what most believers call uh, the Tower of Babel. And it could very well be called uh, the, the origins or the beginnings of, of uh, Babylon. It, it, it could be called the, the quest for independence from God. Uh, or it could be called the pride of the nations. I think any of those titles will capture the, the, the message behind what we're going to look at over these nine verses in Genesis chapter 11 here. Pastor Sean finished last week with concluding the story just about uh, God flooding the earth and providing salvation for Noah and his family and consequently Noah's descendants. And I think that this text here picks up um, around maybe a little bit over a hundred years after the, the floodwaters have subsided. And God commands uh, Noah in Genesis chapter 9, right when the flood has, had subsided, he, he commands Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth. That's Genesis 9-1. And that's a similar command we see pictured in Genesis chapter 2. It gives this command to, to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth, right? A part of reflecting the, the image of God is, is by ruling the earth on his behalf and announcing the universal lordship of God over the nations. And as we'll see as we go through this, when we rebel against that, it's to our destruction. Right? God getting glory, us being obedient to God and his commands really is for our good. It really is for our good. And before I, I read our text, I want to read a quote to you from a theologian regarding these first 11 chapters. I think this, this section kind of summarizes what we've been looking at over the, the last several weeks. And I, I think that it um, certainly captures the heartbeat or the thrust of, of the text that we're looking at this morning. This is what this commentator says. He says, the focus of the author, Moses, okay, Sean taught us Moses is the one that wrote the book of Genesis. The focus of the author since the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis has been both on God's plan to bless mankind by providing him with that which is good and on man's failure to trust God and enjoy the good God has provided. The characteristic mark of man's failure up to this point in the book has been his attempt to grasp the good on his own rather than trust God to provide it for him. Listen to that last part again. Grasp the good on his own rather than trust God to provide it for him. As we work through these first nine verses here, I want you to hold that in your minds. So we're looking to see what, what's going on, what this, what's happening in this historical account that we have at the Tower of Babel, and, and what truths can we draw from it so that we can learn from it and we can see Christ more clearly as we go along. And I'm going to read our section, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to make some remarks about this text. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, the Word of God says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words or the same vocabulary. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and to see the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left, off the, they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. This word has been preserved for a long time. 
and it's living and active, which means there's something you want us to grasp in this text here this morning. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would humble us. God, I pray that your church would leave here more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that your word either softens hearts or hardens hearts. And, and I pray, God, that hearts wouldn't be hardened this morning. They would be softened so that we can see Christ more clearly. So thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to open it for a few minutes this morning. And I pray that your word would inform our beliefs and our behavior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing that we need to see out of this text is that the builders, and I'm calling these the people in Genesis 11 builders because they were building stuff, and I don't know what else to call them, but the builders believed that they knew better than God. It's the first things we need to see out of this passage. They believed that they knew better than God. We see that in the first three verses. The whole earth had one language, the same words of the same vocabulary. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they settled there and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. God told Noah, like I said just a minute ago, God told Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. It's this command that God gave to Noah. And this group of builders here... They would have been aware of this command that God gave to Noah and his descendants because they are themselves descendants of Noah. Now here, here we have them rebelling, worst case scenario, or ignoring, best case scenario, God's command to Noah because they believed that their plan was better or more logical than God's. As I'm studying this and as I'm reading through it, preparing to, to walk you through it this morning, I'm, I'm tempted to agree with the builders, right? That bigger numbers equal strength. Bigger numbers equal security. Bigger numbers equal more helping hands so that we can be more productive. Right? That, that's, that's logical to me. That makes sense up here to me. That's what, it's not what God calls them to do, and we're going to see why that is as we go along this morning in the sermon. But let's press into this a little bit. These people, they, they were selfish, and they were temporal in their thinking. It's what we begin to see if we, we press into this a little bit more, that maybe this isn't as logical as what I thought at, at first glance, right? They, they find this large area of land, that's Shinar, okay? They find this large area of land that would hold the current population. But what about God's his command for them to be fruitful and to multiply? What about, what about that, that piece there? Right? As, as their numbers increased over time, that land that they were inhabiting would prove to be insufficient for their needs, Right? For them to assimilate into one people, for them to assimilate into to one land, this sort of uh, urbanization is a failure to think past their immediate number. And it's a failure on their part to think past their immediate circumstances. Right? That, it could hinder for them the ability to, to be obedient to being fruitful and, and, and multiplying. And, and 
And it runs the risk of causing disharmony. And I think we, we see that two chapters later, Genesis chapter 13. We see that issue come up with Abram and with Lot. Start with verse 5 in Genesis 13. The, the text says this. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was what? What was their church? Strife, right? There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And you see this with, with Jacob and with Esau later on in Genesis chapter 36 as well. That's what's going to happen to, to these people that are rebelling against the commands of God that are good for them and coming up with their own plan because they believe that it's, it's more logical. They didn't have this eternal perspective that Pastor Sean talked about a few weeks ago. They had this temporal vision, and this temporal vision that they had was devoid of worshiping God and expanding his kingdom, and it was going to cause them problems, right? It's not going to cause God problems. Them refusing to, to worship God and be obedient to God was going to cause them problems. It was bad for them. The second thing is there may have been doubt regarding God's word and his, his trustworthy character. There may have been doubt there. Right? To, to the builders, God is seen as too restrictive. It's too restrictive. Why can't I do what I want to do? Right? And, and because of our sin nature, we're naturally inclined to be prideful and, and, and disobedient anyway, right? And from that sin nature in us, this, that, 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 this posture that these builders have that we're ourselves so prone to have, it can manifest itself. I can see it, right? It, it can manifest itself in the form of a question. And at the root of that question is this distrust of God and his character that, that's as old as when the serpent was convincing Eve to doubt the trustworthiness of God. It's at the root of it. And it could, it could come in this, this type of question. Doesn't God know that there's strength in numbers? Right? Or, or, or there may be deep within these builders this, this desire, this wicked desire to become a God or to, to become God. If I were God, I would do X instead of Y. Therefore, I'm going to do X. And in doing X, I'll show God and I'll show him that I don't really need him. We can't be too judgmental here when we're looking at this passage because we, we do the same thing. Even though it's my natural temptation is to I, I downplay my own sins or I round them off a little bit so that my sins kind of sound like strengths, right? When I went to college, there was this one guy I went to college with. This is a complete rabbit trail. But the, um, we had to go around. We were applying for this leadership position. And we had to all go around and confess weaknesses. And his weakness was, sometimes I just love God too much. <laughs> and we we, we kind of round, round off our, our sins a little bit. And so we can qu quickly jump to conclusions here about the builders. But we fail to see the parallels in our own life. Right? Our, our natural tendency is to lean into our own understanding, right? Our own logical understanding, to figure things out independent of God. Or at least I know that that's my natural tendency. 
Right, I'll confess, so oftentimes when I'm faced with an opportunity or I'm faced with, with problems or with struggles, I'll go to a friend long before I entrust my life and circumstances to the God of the cosmos. Isn't that sad? Right? Or, or I'll try to fix something on, in my own strength rather than laboring under the banner of the grace of God. Right? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work things out in God-centered community and we shouldn't be proactive. Those are good, godly things. But we need to be careful that those good, godly things don't become our righteousness, don't become the means by which we, we begin to think that um, everything rises and falls on our shoulders. We need to look at our opportunities, our struggles, our sins as this this means of grace God's given us to entrust those things to Him. And this is nothing new. Right? Press into your own heart here. Right? We, we don't want to leave anything to providence. That's our natural inclination. We don't want to leave anything to providence. Right? What's going on right now in your heart and in your mind that you're not entrusting to God this morning? Right? What are you seeking to manipulate in your life because you lack trust in the Lord. Right? It's helpful for me to think about it in those terms sometimes. My temptation to manipulate things, really at its root, is a lack of trust in God. I'm rebelling against my profession. That's what's at its root there. And I think many times when we're manipulating things and many times when we're frantic and many times when we're stressed out and many times when it just seems like life is spiraling out of control is because we're some, some sort of idol has taken, taken our hearts captive. We need to trust our lives to God. We need to repent of assuming the role of God. It's exhausting to assume the role of God. What I need every day is for the word of God to wash over me so that I can internalize it and live in response to it. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 comes to mind in this passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make, you, he'll make straight your paths. Right? If, I, if I read that passage through the lens of the New Testament, I understand it's only because of the person and work of Christ that I even have the capacity to do that. So man, why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I make it a daily discipline to, to, to trust in the Lord with all my heart? Why wouldn't, I, why wouldn't I look at my circumstances and my struggles in life as this means of grace God is giving me to trust Him? Number two, the nations, and I didn't get a chance to correct that. The nations is synonymous with the, the builders. Didn't get to update that there. But the, the builders wanted independence from the true God. The builders wanted independence from the true God. And I say true God because they, they weren't forsaking worshiping. They were still worshiping. They were just forsaking worshiping Yahweh, the true God, the creator of the cosmos. Right? This is the natural progression for us. This is the natural progression of depravity. Right? The progression, this is the progression of, 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 of man thinking that he or she knows better than God. I know better than God, therefore I don't need him, or I will fashion him into my image 
Because the God of the Bible, the God of the Scripture, the God who sustains everything is holding me back. We see in verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Right? Even the language that Moses is using here, it gives the impression that the created, right, the builders, they're, they're striving to become the creator, or, or they're striving to replace the creator. Right? That's the language there, come, let us make. That's what the builders are saying, come, let us. That reminds you of anything? Reminds me of Genesis 1 when, when God says, let us make man, man in our image after our likeness. These men are trying to assume the role of the creator. And in their assuming the role of creator, they're rebelling against the God of the cosmos. They wanted their names to be great. They wanted their names to be great. And I don't think that this is evil in and of itself. If you flipped over one chapter, you see God give this promise to Abram. In verse 2 of chapter 12, and he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make what? Your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So, so this desire isn't, it's not evil in and of itself, but it lacks this God-centered perspective on life and circumstances. God promises to make Abram's name great. Abram didn't seek to make his own name great. Right? God, God did this so that Abram would be a blessing. He did this so that Abram would have both physical posterity and spiritual posterity. Right? That, that, that's, that's what's lacking here in Genesis chapter 11. Here we have men desiring to make their own names great on their own terms, independent of the creator of the cosmos. There lacks this reverence, there lacks this worship for the God that sustains them even in their rebellion. Right? This is where we see a legitimate desire, making a name great, become this ruling desire that fuels their worship, their idol worship. Right? And here's the crazy thing. If they would have just been obedient to God, be fruitful and multiply, Right? That's how the name is sustained, generation after generation. Their names would have been great, not for their own sake, and not in some prosperity gospel type of way, but their names would have been made great for the glory of God and the pre preservation of God's church. Not only did the builders want independence from the true God of the Bible, but they may have wanted to replace, rival, or reach God. Listen to this comment from Puritan Matthew Henry here. It says, It, talking about the tower here, seems designed for an affront to God himself. For they would build a tower whose top might reach to heaven, which bespeaks a defiance of God, or at least a rivalship with him. They would be like the Most High, or would come as near him as they could, not in holiness, but in height, they forgot their place. In scorning to creep on the earth, 
a resolve to climb to heaven. Not by the door of the ladder, but some other way. You think of the arrogance here? Man doesn't get to God. God condescends to man through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It can't happen either of, any other way. Right? Replace, rival, reach. The sinful and arrogant men, they, they began to believe that they could reach God in their own works. And they began to believe that, well, man, if I can reach God, maybe I can replace God. Maybe I can thwart his plan. Maybe I can thwart his purposes. And they were crafty enough to spur each other on to that work, to that evil work. Let's press pause for a minute and think about this, right? Because it's easy to, to see the absurdity of what these builders are doing. Right? It, it seems so blatantly obvious to us, so far removed from the ancient Near East culture. But it starts with something. It starts with something in our hearts. It starts with a misbelief about God. That's, where, that's what we're seeing here happening. We're seeing the outworking of this misbelief about God. Many scholars agree, and, I, and we have a photo that will be put up here on the screen here, but there's almost universal agreement that what the Tower of Babel was was what's called a ziggurat, okay? And the ziggurat here was, uh, they resemble pyramids, but they don't function anything like pyramids. Um, they were dedicated to deities, okay? <clears throat> At the top of the ziggurat, you, uh, it, it's known as the, the gate of the gods, and it's the, the entrance into their heavenly abode, and at the bottom was this temple, okay, where hopefully the gods would descend, receive gifts, and bless their people. This assumes a certain concept of God, doesn't it? This, there's this uh, major misbelief or assumption about who God is here in this passage, and it's a function that's rooted, because these are the origins of Babylon, right? It's a function that's rooted in the Babylonian system, which was cultic and pluralistic. Right? We're at ground zero for that stuff, what we're seeing here. It humanized God. Right? These people were envisioning God in human terms. And so not only were they trying to be like him, they were trying to bring God down to the level of fallen humanity. How blasphemous. So a major offense that we find in this passage is, is to be found in the beliefs that the builders had about the God of the cosmos. Right? This, this belief that resulted in a behavior. It went beyond idolatry. It degraded the nature of God by portraying him as if he has needs. Man, that's weighty, isn't it? That's at the heart of the rebellion that we see going on in Genesis chapter 11. This is why doctrine matters, Coastal. This is why, this is why doctrine of God matters. If you, if you find yourself bored with doctrine and if you find yourself bored with getting a clear a clear picture of God as he reveals himself to us in Scripture, I assure you that you're already well on your way to worshiping an idol. If you find 
you're, you're, you're getting your picture of God or you're getting your beliefs about God from, from books and movies like The Shack or Heaven is for Real, I guarantee you, you're well on your way to worshiping an idol. Right? We, we, I can't for the life of me understand why Christians don't have a jealous view of God. There's a great commission aspect tied to that for me. When we see people in Hollywood or we, we see people that have this distorted view of God, I'm not looking at them as my enemies. I'm looking at them as someone who's positioned themselves to have the wrath of God poured out on them. And I need to love them enough to present God as he presents himself in the scripture. God forbid I keep my mouth closed on pe- when I dialogue with people who have a faulty view of God. Souls are at stake. And we see what happens when at the heart of the rebellion of the builders in Genesis chapter 11. Just so blatant here. It starts with a misbelief about God. So, your picture of God, where does that come from? Is it tethered to the scriptures? Is it distorted? This misbelief about God, it led them to believe that they could defy God. It led them to believe that they could defy God. The, there's a quote here that says, Such, such a, a tower would protect them against attack and enable them, they believed, to escape another flood, which God had promised should never be. The flood had covered the highest mountains in the uh, antediluvians, the, the, uh, the pre-flood world, but had not reached unto the heaven. If therefore a structure higher than the mountains could be erected, men reason, they would be safe, whatever God might do. Consider that. There's such a distrust of God and his word here. Right? God may be a liar, so I'm going to build a contingency plan and I'll show him. Right? I'm going to build... This, this tower that's so far up that if he floods the world again, I won't need him. I'll be safe. Right? They essentially say, let's build this tower or else we'll be scattered like God wants us to be. So what's the result of that? A man-made city will be shaken. Do you catch the underlying theme of this workspace salvation that we see in Genesis 11? These men think they can save themselves. Sounds ridiculous, but we live like that every day, don't we? These men think they can save themselves. Look here what happens. It says, and the Lord came down. Okay, and God coming down here, this is anthropomorphic description of God intervening in the actions of prideful, sinful man. Okay, almost seems like Moses may be mocking them. He has that ziggurat in mind here when he's telling us about it. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, this passage here, that verse there is saying their depravity will only continue to increase. Their wickedness will only continue to increase. And it's not good for these people that their depravity and their wickedness increase. It is not good for these people. 
So the response is, come, let us, right? We see the come, let us that the, the builders are saying. But now here's God saying, come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, so, so here we have the formation of different languages. Up until now, according to our text, everyone spoke one language. And I, I can't even imagine that. We're so far removed from that. And I'm tempted to read that and think, man, can you imagine the barriers that would be broken if we all spoke one language? We wouldn't even need the ESL classes that we do, right? We would be so productive if only, we, we could get along so well if only we spoke one language. Maybe there would be no war if we spoke the same language. Maybe we'd be more productive in helping people that are in need if we all spoke one language. That's, that's not what happens here. D- depravity increased. Right? According to this passage, apart from God, it doesn't matter if you speak one language and you're one people. Depravity only increases. Wickedness only increases. This is what happens when we, we have this picture of people speaking the same language devoid of the worship of God. Right? Those at the Tower of Babel speaking one language, they were going to build a city in their minds that could never be destroyed or shaken. But God graciously teaches them otherwise. Right? This form of discipline, this, this causing confusion and this dispersion really is a grace of God. Have you ever thought about that when you read Genesis chapter 11? Man, this is, this is a grace from God. We've already established that everything that these men and women are doing is only increasing their depravity. It's only increasing their wickedness. And not only are they rebelling against God and worshiping an idol, they're destroying their own future that will lead generation after generation after generation away from the worship of Yahweh. That's what's at stake here. God's giving them a future. God's giving them grace. God is is giving them this gift of repentance here. Right? He, he could have allowed their plans to continue and their depravity to increase, but he didn't. He intervened when the builders were at the height of their rebellion. Right? He, he intervened when the, the builders rejected him. He intervened when the builders didn't want him. Hasn't he done the same for us, church? If you call yourself a Christian, he has. Right? How many times have we tried to earn things? How many times have we fallen into this workspace salvation? How, long have, how many times have we tried to manipulate our lives because of some ruling desire in our hearts? How many times have we taken the lesser earthly things of this world and exchanged them and turned them into idols instead of worshiping the God who condescended to man and saved him in the person and work of Christ? I look back and, man, I've had a lot of idols in my life. So many idols in my life. And I'm so glad that in my rebellion, while Joey was a sinner, Christ died for me. God graciously destroyed and destroys idols in my life. 
God has something so much better in store for his church than these man-made kingdoms. He has an imperishable kingdom. An imperishable kingdom. And, and, and we get glimpses of that. Our God is so good that we get glimpses of that this side of eternity. Turn with me to Acts 2. Love this. The first eight verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Only Christ has the authority to bring the nations together in an unshakable way. It's reserved for Christ alone. Right? Here in Acts chapter 2, I want you to think about this. We have a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And God gives that to us in Acts 2 to see here. Isn't that amazing? In, in this passage, we see nations coming together in one city. Right? It's Jerusalem. And they're speaking and they're hearing one another in their own language. Right? This happens right after Christ descends to the right hand of God the Father to rule and to reign over the earth. Right? Could you imagine being in the early church and witnessing this? God through Christ, he's provided salvation for his church and now he draws them together under the banner of the gospel. And look what happens when God's the one that brings nations and tongues together. Verses Man trying to do it in this man-centered way. The latter part of Acts 2 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a great, encouraging, historical account. This earthly picture that we get, this glimpse that we get of what heaven's going to be like. Right? We see the daily praise and worship of God in this passage. Right? We see a devotion to true doctrine. Right? They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching here. We see a devotion and a care for one another. And we see an expansion of God's church through the fulfilling of the Great Commission. This was truly here, this glimpse into this reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Right? God's plan has always been to bring the nations together through the person and work of Christ. Right? The, the men and the women at, at the Tower of Babel, they were trying to come together apart from God, and it led them to idolatry and to blasphemy and to all sorts of wickedness. God here in Acts 2, he demonstrates that only the person, the only person that can bring nations together in a God-centered way is King Jesus. 
Man, that excites me. And this side of eternity, he gives us glimpses of that. This side of eternity, we get a glimpse of that when we gather together for corporate worship. And we can look forward to the day when the reversal of the Tower of Babel is permanent. Right? Where God brings together his church from every tribe, every, tribe, every tongue, every nation, all throughout church history. And if he tarries all the church in the future. The scattered church will one day be joined together for eternity. I love this picture in Revelation 21 here. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is better than the Garden of Eden that we've seen before the fall. Because in it there's no possibility of corruption, right? This is redeemed humanity in all her diversity coming together as one people under the banner of the gospel in the great city where the glory of God is the light. There'll be no corruption. There'll be no sin nature. There'll be no attempt to overthrow the God of the cosmos. Just adoration and worship without any hindrance of sin or sickness or death for all eternity. A permanent reversal of the Tower of Babel. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the trustworthiness of your character in your word. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us see Christ more clearly, God, to lean into the gospel more and more, God. As your Holy Spirit perseveres us in the faith. So God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that you do Your plan is to bring people together as one people, but not apart from the person and work of Christ, under the banner of the person and work of Christ. So we have confidence and we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.